Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to this continuing education program entitled Clinical Updates and Strategies for a Long-Term Management of Patients with Multiple Sclerosis. This is podcast number three, Updates in Multiple Sclerosis Science and Accurate Diagnosis. I'm Dr. Fred Loveland, Saunders Family Professor of Neurology and Director of the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Jeffrey Cohen, the Hazel Pryor Hostetler Professor of Neurology, Director of Experimental Therapeutics at the Mellon Center for MS Treatment and Research at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome, Jeff. Uh, well, uh, hello, Fred. Thank you for the invitation to participate in this. So our topic today is gonna to be diagnosis. Uh, of multiple sclerosis. And so let's start out with, with a bit of a history. Tell us a bit of the background of the McDonald criteria. Well, uh, so conceptually, uh, MS is uh, thought of as a disease that causes multifocal uh, pathology in the central uh, nervous system. Um, uh, so uh, ingrained in the diagnostic criteria for now quite a few years has been the concepts of uh, dissemination in space, so anatomic dissemination, uh, dissemination in time, meaning that uh, pathology develops over time, um, uh, and that uh, there's no better uh, uh, diagnosis. So uh, there have been a number of, of diagnostic criteria over the years that um, uh, categorize patients in terms of diagnostic certainty. Uh, define what is meant by relapse, what's meant by progression, uh, what's meant by dissemination in space and time. Uh, and uh, uh, the most recent uh, iteration of the diagnostic criteria are the McDonald criteria, which were first published in 2001. Uh, they're also known as the international criteria, uh, uh, but they're frequently referred to as the McDonald criteria uh, in honor of Ian McDonald, who helped uh, develop them. So the, the main um, purpose of the McDonald criteria relative to the previous criteria were, first of all, to maintain some of those concepts I just talked about, uh, but also uh, specifically uh, to simplify the, the diagnostic criteria, the diagnostic categories uh, into MS, possible MS or not MS, uh, and then most importantly, uh, to define how one could utilize uh, imaging, uh, cerebrospinal fluid, and other laboratory tests. Uh, to make the diagnosis. Okay, so so we've had McDonald in 2001 and then McDonald 2005. 2010 was, was probably the biggest jump. Uh, and then of course now we have 2017, but can you talk a little bit about 2010 and 2017? Well, so, um, you know, initially the McDonald criteria were largely based on uh, expert opinion. Um, and uh, uh, we were just starting to incorporate MRI into the diagnostic uh, criteria. 
so there were a lot of rules for how MRI uh, uh, might be uh, utilized and what were the, uh, the definitions, the criteria for uh, uh, dissemination in space and time. Uh, and there was a big change in 2010 uh, where uh, the MRI uh, criteria were formalized, they were simplified to some extent, uh, and um, uh, for the first time, uh, it was uh, uh, possible to make the diagnosis at the time of the first clinical episode, the so-called clinically isolated uh, uh, event, um, uh, clinically isolated syndrome. Uh, and then in 2017, uh, the most recent uh, version of the criteria, uh, there was um, a lot of effort uh, to, to simplify some of the rules, uh, to uh, try to move away as much as possible from uh, uh, consensus opinion, but to base any revisions on uh, available evidence, uh, uh, to preserve what was felt to be uh, the good features of the diagnostic criteria that they were uh, they were largely uh, uh, very sensitive and and uh, reasonably uh, uh, specific um, uh, uh, but also uh, one big change was to reintroduce uh, utilization of cerebrospinal fluid into the specific uh, criteria uh, and under some circumstances allowing uh, the presence of CSF uh, oligoclonal bands to substitute for the requirement for demonstration of dissemination in, in uh, time. So, so let's talk about in 17, what defined dissemination in space? Well, so, so dissemination in space, first of all, can be, as in all the versions of the McDonald criteria, can, can be demonstrated clinically if uh, 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 a person uh, in whom the diagnosis of MS is being considered uh, has relapses that reflect different locations in the central nervous system. Uh, that satisfies the requirement for dissemination in space. But the the main one of the main purposes of, of the McDonald criteria is to allow one to make the diagnosis more efficiently. In other words, earlier uh, by the utilization of uh, MRI to, to demonstrate dissemination in space. And so. Uh, uh, the criteria define four characteristic locations for lesions on MRI, uh, uh, periventricular, which includes uh, uh, the corpus callosum, uh, juxtacortical, uh, and uh, uh, in the new version, uh, intracortical lesions were added to that location, uh, posterior fossa, which includes brainstem and cerebellum, uh, or spinal cord. So, um, demonstration of, of lesions that have certain characteristics in uh, two of those four locations uh, satisfies the requirement for dissemination uh, in space. Now, one, one thing that I'm sure we'll talk about is, is that uh, in the current version of the criteria, uh, uh, optic nerve is not included in one of the, those key locations. So although optic neuritis uh, is one of the, the characteristic clinically isolated syndromes, uh, it's not one of the locations for de demonstration of uh, dissemination in space by imaging or other uh, testing. Okay, and, and dissemination in time? So dissemination in time uh, can be demonstrated by the uh, demonstration of a, uh, a new uh, T2 lesion uh, not present on a, a previous scan or by the uh, uh, demonstration of 
uh, both enhancing and non-enhancing lesions on uh, the same scan uh, at any point relative to uh, the clinically isolated syndrome. And then, of course, uh, uh, the occurrence of a new clinical relapse. Okay, and so for both of these on the MRI now from 2017, the symptomatic lesion can be included in the count, which wasn't the case in 2010. Right. So one of the one of the concerns previously was is that by including uh, the lesion that was causing the clinically isolated syndrome uh, uh, in the determination of dissemination in space or time, uh, that one would, as it were, sort of double be double counting. Uh, but in fact, when that was looked at, um, uh, it didn't seem to make a difference in the sensitivity or specificity in the of the criteria. So, uh, and frequently it's not so straightforward to determine which is the, the symptomatic lesion. So, uh, that was one of the one of the ways that the the 2017 criteria were al allowed uh, some simplification. Right. So, so these criteria have actually simplified quite a bit. Um, the the MRI. Uh, criteria uh, going back to even to the initial McDonald 2001 were driven primarily uh, by, by data that was uh, provided uh, often from the European MRI group, but they were much more complicated back then. It was nine lesions and three had to be particular right. and such like that. And so um, it's, it's become much more simplified, especially since, since 2010, which gets to the other side of the coin, of course, of, of uh, misdiagnosis. But before I get to that, you did bring up one very important point since neurologists basically at heart are and should be clinicians, um, that if you're in Antarctica and you don't have access to an MRI scan, you still have diagnostic criteria for diagnosing dissemination in time and dissemination in space uh, on clinical events alone. Um, which, which you highlighted, both the fact of finding evidence of involvement of more than one area of the nervous system occurring in more than one occasion. And that was what we classically did before we had these MRI uh, criteria, but the MRI criteria had made this diagnosis easier and earlier. And so I think most of us agree, and I'll ask you if you do, that, that the McDonald criteria have allowed for earlier diagnosis of MS, not necessarily more diagnosis of MS. No, I think that I think that's true. I mean, one of the purposes of the McDonald criteria was to allow uh, uh, the diagnosis to be uh, confirmed uh, before a second event um, uh, by looking at the appearance of, of new lesions on, on MRI. So that that was in fact one of the explicit purposes, and, and I. And there have been a number of studies that have confirmed that, that uh, the McDonald criteria uh, allow for that. Now, one of the issues which we'll talk about is that uh, one of the sources of misdiagnosis has been, as it were, sort of misapplication of the, of the McDonald criteria or um, uh, 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 looking at nonspecific lesions on, on MRI and, and uh, including those in the in making the diagnosis, so it's it's been a double-edged sword, of course. So let's get into that a little more in terms of misdiagnosis. What what do we know about the numbers? You talked a bit about the causes, and, and I think the misreading of MRI is one of the one of the big ones. Somewhat surprisingly, uh, misdiagnosis of MS uh, remains a, a common problem. In in some series, twenty to thirty percent of of people. 
uh, referred to MS centers with uh, the diagnosis that MS turned out to have uh, uh, another uh, diagnosis. Uh, and there's, there's a number of, of uh, causes for that. One has been the, the uh, impetus to try to make the diagnosis early. Uh, uh, secondly, has been uh, uh, is a, uh, sort of misapplication of the of the diagno diagnostic criteria. Uh, one has to be rigorous, and uh, a, a patient who merely has um, uh, neurologic symptoms that that come and go, uh, and who has multiple T2 hyperintensities on the MRI, uh, may not necessarily have multiple sclerosis, particularly if the symptoms or the MRI findings are non-specific. So. Uh, uh, MS does potentially have a very wide differential diagnosis, uh, and one has to be very careful uh, not to misdiagnose because that has implications. People who receive the diagnosis get started on disease-modifying therapy, uh, and then because they don't have MS, uh, they may not respond very well, uh, and then therapy gets escalated. So uh, misdiagnosis remains a, a big problem, uh, and um, uh, there's probably two ways we'll address that. One is to rigorously apply the criteria and, and understand that they were really intended to confirm the diagnosis uh, in someone who already has a high probability of having multiple sclerosis by virtue of having had a clinically isolated syndrome, not specifically to distinguish MS from other conditions. Uh, and the other way we'll, we'll uh, address this problem is to develop uh, uh, tests that that are more specific for MS, uh, and we can talk about that uh, in a minute. Yeah, so I think that that's a point that's well worth repeating: that McDonald is for diagnosing MS, not for differentially diagnosing MS. That there's other right. that meet the criteria. The other is that McDonald is based on the specific MRI characteristics that you described, you know, that, that a, a preventricular lesion should be touching the ventral and such like that. It doesn't mean that MS can't produce other lesions. It just means they weren't included in the analysis that led to McDonald. Right, yeah, so that's, so that's uh, the 2017 publication of, reiterate some of the characteristic of lesions in MS. Uh, so the, the periventricular lesions need to be touching uh, the ventricles. The juxtacortical lesions need to be touching the cortex. Uh, and although MS frequently causes deep white matter lesions, those, are, those uh, can also occur in a number of other conditions and are somewhat less specific for multiple sclerosis. Um, the other uh, uh, point that's reiterated in the publication is, is that um, one should have a low, low threshold for uh, obtaining additional information to confirm the diagnosis. So that includes, for example, spinal cord imaging. Lesions within the spinal cord are uh, much less common in these other conditions. Uh, and have a low threshold for, for performing a spinal tap. Uh, there was a, a time when we uh, we're doing spinal taps less and less often, uh, but I think they're they're being done more often now again, uh, both to to confirm the diagnosis with more certainty, uh, and in some patients to allow one to confirm the diagnosis by the criteria at the time of the first event. 
uh, uh, without requiring dissemination in time. Uh, so specifically, that would be you know a patient who has uh, a single event, uh, a substantial MRI lesion burden, um, but who does not have enhancing lesions, perhaps because they've already received corticosteroid. That might be someone in which one would not want to wait even for another MRI uh, to demonstrate dissemination in time. So the presence of CSF oligoclonal bands allows one to make a diagnosis in that person at the time. So, so I agree that we're doing more spinal taps now, just based on uh, McDonald 2017. But do we have any idea of what the timing is on the onset of oligoclonal bands? Most of the data on the percentage of individuals with MS who have oligoclonal bands comes from patients with established MS. It also comes from centers where they're very good at measuring oligoclonal bands as opposed to necessarily commercial labs. But do we have any idea when they occur? Well, they, well, so they frequently are, are present early in the disease, but I don't think we have very good data on um, uh, the proportion of positive oligoclonal bands at various stages of the disease. Uh, as you say, most of the data come from people uh, who already with the established diagnosis uh, and uh, at centers that have expertise in, in performing oligo, the oligoclonal bands uh, electrophoresis methods uh, in an optimal way. Uh, it also is important to remember that uh, MS is not the only disease that causes oligoclonal bands. A any disease that causes uh, uh, inflammation within the central nervous system can lead to oligoclonal bands. So uh, it's, their, their utility is mostly in a, in a patient in whom there, there are other features that uh, indicate uh, multiple sclerosis. Uh, the other point that's important to remember is that the oligoclonal bands need to be specific to the CSF. So they have to be present in the CSF and not present uh, in the serum. Good. So, so what are some of the disorders that have been mistakenly diagnosed as MS? People have looked at this. Well, so in, in the series, uh, looking at misdiagnosis, uh, the uh, the disorders that were most frequently misdiagnosed fell into two categories. One were uh, uh, diseases such as uh, NMO spectrum disorders and, and, and probably more recently anti-MOG disease. So diseases which uh, CNS inflammatory diseases that have some features that overlap those of MS. Uh, and making that distinction is important because uh, the treatments uh, for those disorders, uh, in some case, in some ways, are, are different than those for MS. Uh, and then the other uh, situation that occurred most frequently were conditions that cause uh, symptoms that are common in MS, uh, so fatigue, uh, dizziness, uh, difficulty with thinking, um, uh, bowel or bladder symptoms, uh, or that can cause uh, non-specific T2 hyperintensities on on brain MRI. Uh, so those would be things like um, uh, uh, migraine, uh, depression, um, uh, people with cardiovascular risk factors uh, who also have uh, some uh, neurologic uh, symptoms. So those are the other uh, common conditions. Uh, uh, and it, it just emphasizes that um, uh, one cannot just apply McDonald criteria uh, indiscriminately. Uh, they're really intended to, uh, to make the diagnosis in somebody who's had a classic clinically isolated syndrome. 
Great. Okay, and you you mentioned early on about the optic nerve, which is a frequently involved central nervous system structure in MS, but wasn't included in McDonald 2017. Thoughts about that? Well, so I think that uh, with the next revision, uh, that that will probably change. Uh, so specifically. Uh, uh, the role of optic nerve involvement in making the diagnosis by the McDonald criteria uh, include the following points. So one is that optic neuritis certainly can be one of the clinically isolated syndromes that, uh, with which a, 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 a patient may present. Um, but, but the way it's not included is that uh, asymptomatic involvement of the optic nerve uh, cannot be utilized as one of the sites to demonstrate dissemination uh, in space or time. Uh, so unlike the four locations that can be used on MRI, uh, optic nerve involvement uh, currently uh, uh, is not a, cannot be used as a fifth site. There have been some studies that, have, that had looked at that when we had our discussions uh, in the most recent uh, uh, international panel uh, meetings, uh, but the data were felt not really to be sufficiently compelling to, to add optic nerve. So, so since the, the uh, panel meetings that led to the 2017 criteria, there now have been a number of, of studies uh, to address this specific issue. So there have been some studies that have looked at um, what's the best way to detect uh, uh, optic nerve involvement in someone who does not have a clear-cut history of optic neuritis, uh, and uh, both VE visual evoked potentials and uh, OCT can be utilized to do that. OCT has some, some advantages. Uh, there have been some studies that have looked at what's the, what are the, the numerical criteria to use to, uh, to define an, an eye as having uh, asymptomatic uh, optic uh, nerve involvement. Uh, and then there are some, some studies going on now to look at whether uh, uh, detection of, of uh, optic nerve involvement in someone without a history of optic neuritis, uh, whether incorporation of that into the criteria uh, improves their uh, performance. So I expect that the next iteration of the McDonald criteria will include optic nerve in, in some way, uh, because it's a, it's a very obvious uh, sort of omission in the current version. It is of historical interest that in the original McDonald criteria 2001, um, uh, VEP, visual book potential abnormalities, were considered dissemination in space uh, and could be utilized. They didn't look at, they didn't include other evoked potentials because it was felt that only the optic nerve uh, evoked potential was the one that would pick up something asymptomatic. Right, right. Yeah, so, uh, you know, an important point still is that, um, you know, when one is trying to make the diagnosis of, of MS and, and is considering whether prior symptoms represented a, a previous uh, relapse, um, one, one needs to have uh, objective confirmation that it was, in fact, a, a CNS event. So there should either be contemporaneous documentation of in this, uh, for example, op optic nerve involvement uh, uh, during an event that one thinks might have been optic neuritis, or there should be residual manifestations, BEP slowing now, or uh, uh, RNFL, or retinal nerve fiber layer thinning, or ganglion cell layer thinning on OCT now. 
Um, but yes, you're correct that uh, uh, earlier versions of the McDonald criteria had some features that then were dropped and then now may be reintroduced. Yeah, and one of the other arguments that was raised about uh, against using optic nerve was that it might make it too easy to diagnose MS, that an individual with an episode of optic neuritis with an enhancing lesion in their optic nerve and one juxtacortical or one periventricular lesion would make dissemination in space and time. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's an important point. So uh, I, th I think everybody in the panel agreed conceptually that the optic nerve is an important area of involvement uh, in multiple sclerosis. Uh, but what, where there was not agreement was how best to incorporate it into the criteria. Uh, and there was um, uh, you know, conflicting um, uh, priorities. One was we wanted to make the diagnosis efficiently in someone who had a high likelihood of having MS, but we also wanted to not ex exacerbate the problem of misdiagnosis. And, and that was a, a tension that, that uh, permeated the, the discussions. Right. And primary progressive MS is always spun off as a separate entity for diagnostic criteria purposes, not to separate it from the rest of MS. You want to discuss how that's being handled? Well, so the, the criteria for primary progressive MS uh, in the most recent version of the McDonald criteria uh, were not uh, uh, changed. Uh, so they're, they're similar. Uh, in some ways to the criteria for relap uh, relapsed onset MS. There's a somewhat greater reliance on uh, spinal cord uh, involvement uh, and somewhat greater reliance on uh, the presence of CSF-specific oligoclonal bands. Um, uh, but uh, the, the criteria for primary progressive MS predominantly require a documentation of progression. Uh, and then documentation of dissemination in space uh, by MRI with somewhat greater emphasis on uh, spinal cord uh, and um, uh, CSF. So, um, you know, an interesting point uh, is that, um, you know, more and more there is, uh, there are indications that uh, symptoms of MS uh, start to appear uh, uh, prior to uh, the first clinical event in people that are ultimately diagnosed with MS, uh, and that some of those symptoms worsen up until the time of that uh, uh, event in some patients. So it sort of raises the, the, uh, the issue of whether uh, there's progression uh, prior to the first event in some patients, and so whether many patients that we're currently calling a relapse onset may in fact have what we technically could call primary progressive MS. So that, I think that's going to be something that, that's going to lead to a lot of discussion in the future. Okay. And let's just finish up briefly with uh, your thoughts about any fluid biomarkers other than oligoclonal bands. Well, so I think, so we, uh, you know, of course, we, we, we need a blood test to, to diagnose uh, MS. That, that's been uh, one of the reasons why there's been such rapid uh, advance in uh, uh, NMOSD is the availability of a, of a fluid biomarker to aquaporin-4 to confirm that diagnosis. We, we currently do not have something comparable in multiple sclerosis, so the diagnosis is primarily made by the synthesis of 
clinical and imaging and CSF uh, findings uh, and the uh, elimination of, of other possibilities. One, one biomarker that's been considered uh, uh, as a potentially a, a diagnostic biomarker for MS has been neurofilament lights, that, which can be uh, uh, analyzed both in CSF and with new technology also in, in blood, serum or plasma. Uh, that turns out not to not probably to be a very useful diagnostic biomarker for MS. So, so people at the time of their clinically isolated syndrome uh, who have higher neurofilament light levels uh, are at somewhat greater risk uh, for the subsequent diagnosis of MS than someone who has lower levels. But in fact, um, uh, MRI and the presence of CSF, uh, MRI findings and the presence of CSF oligoclonal bands are more predictive and NFL at that stage. I think the, the test that, that is more likely to be incorporated into the diagnostic process early is the demonstration of, of essential vein uh, within uh, cerebral uh, T2 hyperintense uh, lesions. Uh, so uh, there've been a number of studies now that have shown that uh, MS lesions have a much higher uh, probability of having essential vein than uh, the lesions in, in uh, many of the other conditions that can cause uh, T2 hyperintensities, uh, and that uh, the, the technology, the, the, the MRI acquisition approaches for demonstrating those central veins are now can now be applied on uh, 3T scanners. Uh, uh, they previously required uh, uh, high, ultra high field strength, uh, and so there there now are a number of studies. Uh, looking prospectively at uh, whether the demonstration of central veins can be incorporated into the diagnostic process. Now, how actually to do that, whether it's um, some number of lesions with central veins, some proportion of lesions with central veins, or whether we require the lesions that are used in the McDonald criteria to have a central vein, uh, that still is being debated. But I think that that's a test that very shortly will be incorporated into the criteria. Yeah, we're going to be discussing that with uh, Dr. Danny Reich at NIH uh, on a, a subsequent podcast. Well, thank you very much, Jeff Cohen. We appreciate your thoughts and insights. And thank you to our listeners who have joined these clinical updates and strategies for long-term management of patients with multiple sclerosis. This podcast was updates in multiple sclerosis science and accurate diagnosis, where I was joined by Dr. Jeff Cohen from the Cleveland Clinic. This activity was supported by independent educational grants from Biogen and Bristol Myers Squibb and is provided by Academic CME. Thank you all for joining us today.